Hello and welcome to episode six of History Remastered. Today is a very exciting episode because we have our first interview episode. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Beth Rembish to the podcast. Thank you ever so much for having me, Charlotte. It's very exciting that you've come on. We're very honoured to have you. And in this interview episode, we're going to be tackling the topic of whether we can trust the history which is presented in museums. And we're going to talk about this in particular with reference to the history of British colonialism, which is your area of specialism. Indeed. And I'm excited to talk all things museums, colonial legacies, all that good stuff. And the kind of structure for today's episode, if you're listening, is that we're first going to look at the wider issue of how historical narratives are presented in museums and how they're constructed. And then we're going to move to talk through Beth's work a bit more, which is the much more interesting bit. And then we're going to finish up with some questions about what her work and the wide issue of historical narratives in museums means going forward. So why it's important to talk about these topics for everyone listening. So this issue of museums not presenting just the historical truth might seem like quite an abstract idea at first, but it's an idea which you've talked about through your teaching at the University of Bristol. Yeah, and it was good to start these conversations last year in our in our unit together on public history. But I guess when thinking about the historical truth, um, without going into a philosophical debate about what <laughs> is truth, um, thinking mainly about what the purpose of museums is and what it has been. Um, and I think if we really want to have a sort of critical understanding and a conversation about museums, we have to think about what museums, especially here in Britain, uh, were designed to do and what they did, um, especially during the sort of 19th century. So they were very much spaces that were showcasing the spoils of empire. Often museums were built to sort of celebrate the work, um, so to speak, of slave traders um, who would have been sort of seen as philanthropists here in the UK. So in many ways, these spaces told a fraudulent history and sort of perpetuated those tired narratives of empire. So I think if we're talking about truth, we kind of have to understand the historical legacies and roots of these spaces and and how and why they show certain narratives and perspectives. Yeah, so that's really interesting because we have to understand where the concept of a museum actually comes from to begin talking about the histories that they're telling. Mm. And would you say that there's something a bit ironic about this in the sense that this is something that we're here today talking about inside a university And you see it being spoken about in academic research papers. And yet these are museums which are public facing. Mm. And the people that are visiting these museums aren't necessarily aware of these issues. Absolutely. I think as a sort of visitor of a museum, you see a museum space as an authority. So we're sort of conditioned into entering these spaces, seeing that as an authoritative voice of the kind of history it's basically presenting. That can then be really dangerous if people aren't given space within that museum to critically engage with what's on display. So when we sort of look at some of the older displays where there would be limited information on sort of um, the context of maybe an artefact that you're looking at, 
that doesn't encourage the visitor in any way to critically engage with what they're seeing. They sort of see it, they take it as fact, they move on with it. So I think thinking about and deconstructing how, well, how authority works within museum spaces is really important for, for the public to go and actually visit and see and sort of digest what they're seeing there. And that's really interesting because you've spoken about the kind of origins of museums, but that is something that's particularly an issue when it comes to the presentation of British colonial history, isn't mm. it? Yeah, absolutely. We, I think um, the British Museum is a really good example of uh, how British colonial history has been presented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, we, we say at the Museum of British Colonialism, which I know we'll go on to speak about, but the British Museum pretty much served that purpose, but very uncritically, because it it houses and it shows all the spoils of empire, the artifacts, the human remains, which is one of the more deeply sort of problematic aspects of their collections. But they've only really recently, after these calls to decolonize museums and institutions, started to revisit their displays. So sort of giving a little bit more context on where and why these artifacts are in the British Museum but it's still not going far enough in a lot of people's eyes and I think you can keep sort of showing the 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 railways and the good stuff about <laughs> yeah. colonialism in museums but I mean colonialism was not designed to bring railways uh, across the world that exactly. was just a part of it uh, colonialism was built on a system of oppression and real brutality and violence so you have to sort of put those museum spaces in that context and think about how and why Britain's colonial history has been presented the way it has um, as a sort of celebration of artefacts and successes across the globe and strengthening of global ties and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, a lot of the things which are in museums, as you're saying, especially around colonial history, aren't presented critically. You're given one narrative mm. when you go into a museum space. And that's something which actually the Museum of British Colonialism, which you've been doing a lot of work with, are trying to challenge. Mm. So do you want to just quickly introduce what the Museum of British Colonialism is? Yeah, absolutely. It's um so it's an online space which was really created by activists in Kenya and in the UK and we sort of started in 2018. And so the main purpose of it was to raise awareness of forgotten histories and perspectives of colonialism. So sort of bringing it into a global public, uh, very much based on academic research. And its, its main focus to start with was looking at the Mau Mau conflict in Kenya. So my main area of um, research specialism and thinking about how and why Kenyans experienced colonialism in the way they did and why their sort of move to independence and their fight for independence was as bloody as it was. Something that we've tried to do with the Museum of British Colonialism is something that is sort of our main critique of museums as a traditional practice is that we don't have a physical space. So we have no desire or intention to be a building with a bunch of artifacts <laughs> to sort of put on display and talk yeah. about that. That's just not our approach to museums. We want it to be um, an online space, but also a sort of community grassroots driven connection where we can challenge what museums have represented. And we just want that space to be open and as loud as we want it to be and as, I suppose, radical as people want to take it. And it's really interesting what you're saying, actually, about how this idea of a museum which doesn't have a physical space completely disrupts mm. our traditional idea of a museum building. And it creates that maybe much more 
democratic, accessible kind of idea where online in the digital space, the museum narrative isn't so set and you're not just seeing one side to it. And I know you did just talk quickly there about what work you have done with the museum, but if you want to just go into that in a bit more depth. Yeah, absolutely. So I I joined the museum in its first year, actually, in 2018. Um, Wonderful co-founders, Chow and Olivia, um, sort of met in Nairobi uh, August of that year, I think. And I was sort of starting out with the museum, just doing some field research for them. Um, I conducted some oral history interviews with Kenyan veterans that fought in the Mau Mau, so fought against British colonial rule, um, writing blog posts for them, just sort of sharing this history as widely as possible. So for me, it was really exciting to be a part of a project like that and being able to see more of the meaningful aspects of my research that wasn't just stuck in the academy necessarily and wasn't just feeding into my doctoral thesis, but actually seeing on the ground how it could work with survivors with um with Kenyan voices and narratives within this um but then now I've sort of moved into a lot more of the exhibition work that we do and um one of those key well one of the most recent ones uh is called the barbed wire village which for me personally is really exciting because it's pretty much seeing my doctoral thesis but in an exhibition um, (laughs) and seeing it visually and seeing people getting to hear and engage with women's voices um, and their experiences of colonialism in Kenya so I worked with our digital experts in Kenya to essentially construct a digital um, 3D map of a concentration camp that the British implemented in the 1950s, which predominantly housed Gikuyu women um, who were sort of known as the backbone of this resistance movement. Um, so Britain were particularly concerned by them. And so it was important for them uh, to sort of construct these sites to punish, to contain these women, to essentially stop the insurgent movement from succeeding. Um, So sort of creating these 3D reconstructions of these camps not only memorialises these spaces and ensures people can actually see what Britain did um, against these women, but it, it allows us to understand how power was sort of negotiated and associated in that time frame. And so I know you just explained there briefly the kind of history and some of the work you've done and you've done a real kind of range and people can find that online, can't mm-hmm. they? They can find the exhibition, the Barbed Wire Village exhibition if you want to and I'll put the link for it actually in the podcast description so you can click on it there. But if you wanted to just maybe explain the history a bit more because for some people they don't know anything about the kind of mm-hmm. Kenyan colonial experience. To be honest, until I got to university, I didn't really know. And it was when I was deciding my dissertation topic as an undergrad. So right at the stage where you're at at the moment, (laughs) um, this was all sort of hitting mainstream news because Kenyans were essentially taking the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office to trial for atrocities that Britain had committed during this colonial era. Um, But essentially you have have the Mau Mau, so the insurgent group largely made up of Gikuyu people from the central region of Kenya. And they took up arms uh, to to oust their colonial oppressors, the British. And this is kind of known as the bloodiest end to empire in many ways, especially in Africa, um, because Britain responded in a really brutal, oppressive counterinsurgency campaign where they essentially detained 
anyone they assume to be associated with the Mau Mau. Thousands of Kenyans hanged without trial. Uh, 1.2 million mainly women and children, were rehoused into what the British called villages, hence our use of barbed wire village, but really they were all, well, concentration camps in all but name. So it's kind of an embarrassment, I would say, in the sort of national history of Britain. So one that Britain very deliberately tried to conceal. And when we talk about the sort of narrative shared in museums and what the truth is, the Mau Mau is a really interesting one because Britain actively sought to bury this truth. And uh, they actively stole or destroyed any files that related to this war because they were very aware of the atrocities they were committing. Um, And this only came to light in 2011, really, when Kenyans took them to court for it, and they were forced to admit to these atrocities and forced to release any files that related to them. Uh, So when we talk about truth and finding truth in museums, it's quite hard to display the truth of some histories when former governments have tried to hide that truth very prominently. So I guess that's also part of what we do at NBC is to make this history that has been purposely buried, uh, very openly uh, shown um, and talked about because it, it drew on longer legacies of British colonial violence, essentially, across the across the empire. It is really shocking, actually, to mm. think about it like that because I certainly, from the perspective of a history student, didn't know anything about that side of colonial history at all. I think until you actually did a lecture on it last year, <laughs> that was the first I'd heard of it. And so that is in itself, I guess, symptomatic of that process of suppressing Mm. this history. It doesn't appear in school curriculums. It doesn't appear in many university curriculums Mm. even. And it's really important that that history is exposed to a wider public. And of course, that's what the NBC is trying to do. Mm. Um, And it's such a brilliant contribution because it feeds into this whole context that we're talking about of challenging the narratives that you see of colonial history in the traditional museum, which often don't talk about that. I mean, what sort of thing do traditional museums normally present about colonial history? I mean, they're getting better. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to completely slay. And and I caveat all of this with, uh, I don't want to minimise the work of curators um, or researchers in museums because I think they're fantastic individuals and they're up against a lot, to be perfectly honest. Um, But I think historically, the kind of narratives that are shown about British colonialism haven't necessarily been these what are classed as subversive or radical histories. Um, we have a thing, especially in this country, about balance. Let's show a balance yeah. to you. When when you're at secondary school and you have that question of empire, was it good or bad? Let's <laughs> let's balance this classic. The classic, exactly. And I think that limits us. And it actually is quite insulting, I think, to yeah. the general public that we can't possibly think in more complex terms than good or bad, good versus evil. Um, what we really need to be looking for is sort of like richer narratives. And I think this isn't about taking stuff out to add stuff in. It's about just making our understanding of these histories far more complex and celebrating in many ways the rich diverse narratives of people who fought against these systems of oppression, um, who still to this day are fighting against these kind of systems of oppression. So I think it also helps when we move into newer narratives that we can share and perspectives, especially of those who were the victims of colonialism, we're able to also move past these binary categories of you were either an agent or you were a victim. Yeah, I think people navigate a 
far more complicated um, path in this. And so it allows for stories that you're not expecting. So a lot of my interviews, I, I sort of went into these interviews with Kenyan women who had lived in these camps and assumed I was going to get all these stories of violence, mm. um, of uh, violation. And, and they they were there, obviously. they were They were very much a part of it. But I also just heard stories of love and friendship and future making, planning for the future. What do we do when we get out of these camps? What can I do to support my children? How can I help my neighbour? What sacrifices am I making for other people? So it was so much richer and more interesting (laughs) in many ways. So I think there's scope for that in museums to just, yeah, complicate the narrative. Yeah, and I think that's true, isn't it? Often these kinds of narratives that you see in museums, they get flattened a bit. You don't realise that it's it's real people you're talking mm. about. And actually, that's something that's really problematic, especially when you're dealing with history, which has got a lot of emotion attached to it, yeah. a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma. Yeah. And when they get flattened to kind of, you know, good and bad, like <laughs> this is what happened, the classic storyline, that's quite problematic. And also, I was going to say to you, what's your experience as a woman working in this field? Mm. Because it's something that not a lot of historians are necessarily working in, mm. probably quite pushing the boat out a bit and working in the field. Certainly in our kind of university setting, there's not many historians who'd say they're a specialist in this kind of history. Mm. So what's your experience been actually finding these narratives and studying this? Twofold, really. In many ways, it's been a really positive experience. I'm going into those binaries of positive and negative. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. In many ways, it's been positive because I think there there is an clear appetite among students, among the public, among people in general for this history. I think gone are the days where we can just say that um, it's not important, people don't care about it, why would we care about it? People care about this deeply, it's, it's people's lived experience, that they're actually, they really care about it. I think it naturally comes with its challenges, one being a woman in academia in the UK, that I think yeah. I can speak for many women in academia that we are still dealing with structural issues. But I'm a white woman in academia, um, and a white woman in academia that researches African history. So it's very obvious where my privilege lies, um, and actually being aware of that, confronting that, and ensuring that most of my work is actually feeding into these sort of grassroots projects like NBC is really important, I think, because this shouldn't be about gatekeeping knowledge. This shouldn't be about only respecting knowledge that is produced in sort of global North knowledge <laughs> systems um, and actually showcasing that which is happening in the global South. So NBC, I mean, yeah, I might do some of this research and feed into it, but I am not a digital expert making these <laughs> reconstructions. That is being fully led by our Nairobi-based team. We couldn't do this project without that sort of global collaboration. So I think it involves a lot of humility and awareness that I am the person that sits and listens to my interview participants and I hear from them and I learn from them and I understand how they experienced these things very personally. And I guess I sort of then go on to just communicate that in the way that I think is most appropriate. So that's my main way of navigating all of this, I guess. But it's it's about listening and re-educating yourself because the histories of Africa I learned at secondary school were not <laughs> the ones that I would like to be reading these days. So yeah, having a little bit of humility is a bit important. Yeah, and I think that feeds into that whole kind of idea of recognising your positionality. Mm. And recognising and just having transparency in it, actually, mm-hmm. I think is probably the main mm. the main thing for you. And I mean, 
for me as well. I mean, I'm very privileged in the mm. university experience I have, again, as a white woman in academia, mm. which is something that you have to be aware of and account for. And just on that, I can just jump on that there. Yeah. Something that I've noticed mainly with my privilege is just my sheer access to information and especially relating to Kenya with with these files that were sort of stolen by the British from Kenya they are now finally released to the public but they're released to the public at Kew Gardens in the National Archives yeah so if you're my Kenyan counterparts Kenyan scholars they have to get big grants to fund them to get all the way to London to look at files that relate directly to Kenyan history. So again, huge issues with structures of power there that we see continued. So by just my default of my privilege, I've had so much more access to a lot of this. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of this is about sort of redirecting and using that access as strategically as you possibly can to be able to actually feed meaningfully into this anti-colonial work or decolonial work if you want to so sort of decentering yourself and recentering the actual research and yeah. the findings and the people involved in those collaborative projects and those contributors and that's so important for I think anyone working in academia to kind of recognize the power mm. structures you're within and trying to combat them as best you can mm. really but what would you say is the best way to deal with this kind of positionality as someone who's engaging with colonial history, but maybe in a more public way, so Mm. listening to this podcast or as a museum visitor, is there something that they or that we can ever do to escape that positionality or should we try to? Yeah, I think it's really important that we we can't escape this um, and we shouldn't escape this because many people have and continue to do so and that's really what perpetuates this harm. But I guess being an actual ally means accepting what we don't know, but also accepting how our position in society can harm others and continues to harm others. It's about listening. It's about being willing to relearn, to challenge our pre-existing assumptions. It's doing the research, asking the questions, leading with compassion, I think is a, is a key point. And we should not be centred in this discourse, but we should be willing to observe, to learn, to grow. I think that, that to me is how I understand sort of allyship and how, how that sort of feeds into my positionality as a researcher of this. And something I encourage of my students, um, something I encourage of the general public, that yeah, when you're in a museum, it's not about you. It's about what you're reading, yeah. how it challenges your perception, and just have some, some patience to not know everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In recognising that, do you think that there needs to be changes then in the process of museum curation and constructing exhibitions altogether? Are there wider changes which need to happen in that side of things? A very easy question. Where to start? I mean, firstly, when we're thinking about the history of colonialism, we need a Museum of British Colonialism. So I'll do a shout out for NBC. Absolutely. We need a history of British colonialism, one that isn't the British Museum, one that actually has these conversations that are happening among the public within academia, which have been for decades. But we need a reckoning of that, especially here in Britain. We need to really deal head on with these histories before we can move forward as a nation that can actually accept its history of empire. So we need to really challenge the traditions of museums. So the way I kind of see the way museum practice moving, and I would love to see it move, is that sort of community-driven, grassroots aspect of this practice. It being collaborative, building links between nations and communities impacted by these processes. But I think it requires people to be brave, and I think it requires people to not be risk-adverse. I think we need to 
shake things up a little bit, try something new. We can't keep doing the same things within the same traditional institutions (laughs) in the same ways and expecting a different result. So I think it requires people to take some risks, I guess, within the confines that they're able to do that. So we've got a bit of direction there from the amazing (laughs) Beth Rembish for the future of museum curation and visitation. And so I guess kind of just to sum up, my final maybe slightly provocative question for today's episode is do museums always tell us the truth so again I won't have a philosophical debate on what is the truth but I think based on everything I've said today probably not (laughs) so I think on that note I would sort of encourage people when you're in a museum firstly reflect on why museums came into existence in the first place um depending on the place you're looking at. Museums came into existence in the way that we know them today in a very particular context within the transatlantic slave trade and the British Empire. So I think reflect on why museums came into existence. Question who they're actually seeking to serve. Who are they attempting to communicate with? And why is that so? Are they attempting to communicate to those who are descendants of people that have been impacted by British colonialism? Or is this seeking to really feed into a myth around national identity which relates to the British Empire? Look at whose perspectives are on display. Who's given the bigger boards <laughs> with information yeah. on? Um, what, what perspectives are really being given that prominence? And essentially think critically about what you're consuming. It's like reading the news. It's like reading a book. It's like watching a documentary. Think critically. It's not taking things for face value. Uh, There is no singular truth. Spoiler alert. Uh, (laughs) There are many truths, um, many narratives and perspectives. And we really need to sort of let all of those flourish in conversation with one another. Yeah, that's really brilliant. That kind of bit at the end there that And that's actually partly what this podcast itself is about, recognising that the history that you receive in a public space you need to take critically. Mm -hmm. You can't just assume that what you're being told is the only truth and the one narrative that you should be taking home at the end of the day. And so with that, I think we've reached the end. A massive, massive thank you to Beth for being willing to come onto the podcast. She is the first ever (laughs) official guest. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure being your guinea pig. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And I, uh, yeah, I look forward to listening to the rest of the series. Yeah, and you can find Beth on Twitter if you like. She's very active on there. You might see a few controversial comments challenging <laughs> a few institutions every now and again. So definitely look out for that. Do you want to just drop your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's at B Rembesh. For those that don't know Polish <laughs> or Polish spellings, it's B-R-E-B-I-S-Z. And then also do follow the Museum of British Colonialism at Museum of BC. We're very active on Twitter, very active on Instagram. And we've got a great webpage, which you can find those oral history interviews and digital reconstructions. And yeah, and I'll put all of those links in the episode description as well. So you'll be able to follow them there. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Hi everyone, it's just me coming in on the end here. Just to say again, thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Beth for agreeing to do that episode. As always, if you can, please leave a rating for the podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to follow along with what's going on, you can follow us on Instagram. Our Instagram is at History Remastered Pod. 
I'll link that in the description of this episode, along with Beth's and the Museum of British Colonialism's Twitter handles and social media. Keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. The next episode is going to be another interview episode with Dr. John Reeks, so that's very exciting. And that'll be coming next, so keep an eye out for that one. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye.